Let's talk about body autonomy in yoga classes. I think all of the practices of yoga aim to lead us towards a better understanding of ourselves and really aim to lead us towards body autonomy, towards autonomy in general, how we are as humans in the world. And the tools of yoga are opportunities for us to develop such autonomy. And in the context of modern yoga asana, this is being shown to be a real stumbling block time and time again, as far as the repeated stories of exploitation of power, misuse of power by teachers. So it's a huge topic and it, it comes up in so many different ways in yoga from the cues we use as teachers to bigger examples of real power abuses by say famous and not so famous teachers. And also in our use of hands-on assists, there are a lot of different ways that this topic emerges. You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. What are some of the ways that well-meaning yoga teachers who are not big name and not aware that they might be interfering with body autonomy? What are some of the ways that it shows up unintentionally in yoga asana classes? Two ways are going to be our verbal cues and our hands-on assists. So hands-on assists, really easy to talk about it. It's more kind of obvious when you are using your hands to manipulate someone else's body, you are doing a lot of things. And number one, we always have to get consent. That's absolute. And Number two, we need to be really clear if we're offering assists, why we're offering them. What is our intention? Why does this help in the pursuit of our overall goals for the student? Because there are a lot of ways we could use our hands. We could use our hands to suggest a position or to push someone deeper into position or to facilitate a movement coming from within the student. So I think there's some more and less useful ways to use our hands in asana but we really have to be careful about if we're using assist to ask ourselves, who's in charge of this body? Let's be clear. The student is in charge of their body 100% of the time. And it is a big deal for me as a teacher to come in and do something to that student's body with my hands that, that sends a message that says, actually, I'm in charge of your body and I know better about your body. I'm just going to go ahead and put it here. That's a huge overstepping of body autonomy boundaries right there. Do you use hands-on assists in your classes? I do not, specifically for that reason. <laughs> did you ever? I did. Yeah, I used to. I, just, I thought it was what I was supposed to be doing. And I used them as corrective assists in the days where I thought things were correct and not correct and things like that. I kind of had a different approach to asana when I came out as a new teacher, replicated what I'd been taught and what I had seen. I never really enjoyed receiving hands-on assists because I was the recipient of a lot of very violating hands-on assists due to my hypermobility and not only violating kind of feeling just inappropriate, but also potentially injurious assists as well. In particular, when I was working hard, learning about my hypermobility, working hard to set boundaries in my body and to feel a sense of containment in my body. And teachers would just nonchalantly come up and just push me past those boundaries just because my body could go there. It's a great example. I never got really injured per se, but I've talked to many people who have. Of course, there's real injury risk there. But more importantly for our discussion is 
that was a message about who's in charge of my body. Here I am working really hard internally to create a boundary and to let my body be in one spot and someone else pushes it past without a good reason. Again, without a good reason. So there's not any justification of why me going deeper in that posture is better than me not going deeper. I don't use hands-on assists, but the assists that I like and that I might use on occasion would be a proprioceptive assist where maybe I put my hands on a part of the body, like maybe the lower ribs in the back. That's a place I like to put my hands on someone's ribs and say, breathe into my hands or push into my hands because I'm giving them a target to, to create something from within themselves to feel a movement coming outward. I'm not imposing movement going from outward to inward. I'm facilitating and eliciting movement from within. I think that can be a really useful way to use hands-on assist when there's consent and a description of why we're doing this and what am I hoping to help you experience as the student. I can say all that out loud so that they know what's happening. I think that's all useful. Because of the power differential and the potential for confusion, I like what you said about a hands-on assist is a big responsibility and we shouldn't do them lightly. There are often other ways of providing that proprioceptive feedback that don't have the same risks, frankly. So I appreciate what you're saying about really ask yourself why. Now, sometimes the why is it's faster to do this. My hands are here. I'm moving around. Here's this person I think would benefit from feeling my hands against the backs of their ribs. Sometimes it might be, I think this person would benefit from feeling my care as I do this versus a wall or a block that doesn't care. I can be more sensitive than a wall or a block. I can adjust my pressure based on what I'm feeling from them. Yeah, it's a responsibility. It's not something to take lightly. It can be useful and especially we were in the same teacher training for anyone listening who doesn't know. I remember actually our lead teacher saying as she was guiding hands-on assists, this is your job as a yoga teacher. She pulled it aside from any other task, any other technique of teaching and implied that this was the most important part of being a teacher was hands-on assists. And that was almost 20 years ago. So it really stuck with me. Yeah. You and I are both coming from this perspective of having been in that style of a training and then taught during a period of time that I now think of as the wild west of yoga teaching <laughs> as these trainings were proliferating and masses of undertrained teachers were being unleashed on the world and so much weirdness came out of that. I think there's still weirdness that happens, but a lot less. I like to think it's a lot less. Yeah, but you're right. We came up in this context of yoga that was very heavy on hands-on assists and very, like you say, prolific in producing very minimally trained teachers who were out there putting their hands on students a lot. And, and causing probably as much harm as good. Again, I do think there's some good that can come out of hands-on assist. I think the communication of care and presence is useful. I don't think it's the ultimate goal of yoga, but I do think it's nice and useful and, and can help create a, an ambiance of feelings of safety. And it can also be just the opposite and absolutely create 
actual unsafety, but certainly feelings of violation and feelings of unsafety and feelings of confusion about who has power in this room. Who has power and what's our relationship? What is my role? What is your role? Human relationships are complicated and there's so much projection (laughs) that happens, especially when things are not verbalized, which Mm -hmm. is why that consent piece is so important. Not that we can even rely 100% just because someone has given verbal consent. Is that consent enthusiastic? We might not know. (laughs) It's true. It is true. It's very complex and we can get into all kinds of nuances. I think the safest bet, honestly, is to just not do it. Absolutely. It's never necessary. There are always other ways to achieve the same goal, like using just the proprioceptive cue I mentioned on the ribs. We could put a yoga belt around the ribs. Everyone could do that themselves so they can feel something. Just that we need a little tactile cue. That's all it is. We could use the wall. We could use the floor. Things to help us know where our ribs are, basically, is the way that I would use my hands in that scenario. There are always other ways to achieve that goal. When in doubt, leave it out when it comes to hands-on assist is what I would say if you're really wanting to promote empowerment of your students and body autonomy. And we really do have to do this differently. This is power abuses happen in every context and yoga is no different. And I think moving forward, we really have to be clear about the role of power in yoga. Many people, yoga teachers included, have had wonderful experiences with hands-on assists and love them and might feel very attached to using them and receiving them. So I know you're not trying to make that wrong. We're just coming at this from our own lived experience and our experience as yoga teachers and our current and best evaluation of the risks and benefits involved. Absolutely. Absolutely. And someone who relies heavily on hands-on assist, I think has a lot to examine as far as their goals and the overall goals of their, the practice and their teaching. And what is it that yoga really wants us to be moving toward? And does this serve that? And there may be a variety of answers to that question, but we at least have to be asking them. Exactly. Exactly. So the other tool that you brought up is cues. Let's talk about how cues might promote or not promote body autonomy. I think cues that bring us into a uh, achievement and performance mode of doing asana are not helpful because they have the potential to really lead us away from the information coming out of our own bodies, subtle experience of movement. And as a teacher, I can either direct my students' awareness to what their experience on the inside and really tune in, go inward, notice what you're feeling. That's one way of directing attention. Or I can direct students' attention to, for the level one version of this posture, do this. If you want to do the advanced version, do this. And so now I'm trying to achieve a shape. I'm not paying attention as much necessarily to what's going on inside. Now I have a different goal, which is achieving a shape that the teacher has presented to me. And certainly if they've presented it as the advanced version, it's a rare human who's not going for that version. So we have sometimes this valuation embedded in our language that's problematic, linear language, level one, level two, level three, advanced, full expression, all these terms lead someone towards achievement versus towards inquiry about their experience. And it also sends a message that that I know better. Yes, you should go deeper. You should push it a little farther. Trust me, I'm the teacher. Don't trust what your body's telling you. Just keep going, you know, that type of messaging. And it's not intentional usually, 
but it's unfortunately the result of that type of languaging. And it's made even more complicated by the fact that students often will come in wanting that type of cueing, craving that type of cueing, expecting that type of cueing, expecting that there are levels that they can move through and get more advanced and that the faster they move through those levels, somehow it says something about their worth and their value as a human being. These are unspoken assumptions, but you can see them very clearly as a yoga teacher in the types of questions that students ask, the way that they respond to your cues, for example. So it's tough as a yoga teacher, we want to please our students. And I think sometimes our approach to cueing is unconsciously in reaction to the expectations that our students bring with them into class. And it's this weird thing where we're like, no, I want to give you body autonomy, even though you don't know you need it and like don't realize that you want it or don't seem to want it. It's really an interesting point. I think you're totally right. It's complicated that way. And I don't think there are many spaces in our modern society where we really are handed back the power over our own bodies. We don't have that experience. We certainly aren't empowered by our medical system by our education system to really embody that, be the expert on our own selves. Yoga is really the only place that many of us have experience with where that is a thing even, or a potential thing. So I think we're in the habit of giving away our power. I think it's comforting for a lot of people to have someone to give their power to who they think knows everything about everything and they're going to know the right answers. And often we get that projections onto yoga teachers unfortunately. So I do think yoga teachers can give people a sense of containment, give people clear guidance, a clear starting point, but also always be clear that this is a starting point. And and the whole point is to find your own wiggle, kind of wiggle from here into your own version of this over time. Is it going to happen on day one? No, it's not. It's going to happen over time as we learn about our own bodies. And so that starting point is important, and it's just we need to hold it with a very loose grip so that people can feel free to diverge from there in any direction, but they know what they're approximating. It's an approximation. And when I studied at Desikachar's place many years ago, that was the one of the big nuggets that I took away from that is their teachers there would say, we're learning these sort of classical forms of asana as Krishnamacharya taught them. Here's the deal. We're learning the form so that you know what to modify. It's not so that you know what to achieve, but the whole point is that you know what we are approximating. A lot of times our modern yoga approach has got that backwards. It says, here's the thing we're trying to achieve. Work hard for as long as it takes till you get it. And instead, it's oh, here's it's a rough, broad brushstroke here. Here's the posture. Figure out how to approximate that over time as you learn about yourself. Figure out how to approximate that in the most appropriate way for you so that you get the most benefit out of it and the least risk. I think this comes back to helping our students understand what yoga is for. Because when they walk in thinking yoga is for loosening their hamstrings or making their butt look a certain way, or getting into a handstand, then they're going to want a lot more instruction than if they walk into a class seeing it as a container for them to 
get to know themselves. Yeah. It's a really different starting point, very different starting point. And we can't control what our students are coming in with, what their goals are. That's always going to be at play. Chances are, if you're a teacher who is more oriented towards the second part of what you said, then you're going to, over time, of course, attract students who are also interested in that and it'll all self-select and you'll be good. But even if you're having a lot of students coming in with some different goals, your job, I think, is to teach yoga as you understand it, to give them a taste of something as you understand it and see how it goes, and then encourage them to to study their response. We can't learn something in the moment only. We need to do the practices, and then we need to really study our response for the next few days and really find out, how did this land in my body and otherwise? How did it land for me? What was the effect of it? All those things so that we can then adjust accordingly next time. So that the next time I'm given kind of some options around a a general theme, I might choose a different option. What all of this is circling around is the role of the yoga teacher and specifically our, I think, natural desire to exert some control over the experience our student has. And probably more subtly, how they perceive me and my class and my teaching. Exactly. That's true. Which is why I believe that teaching yoga is like such a great vehicle for practicing yoga. Yeah, it is. This is a chance for us to notice. Oh my gosh. Yes. I want to control what my students think about me and what my students think about my class. It's not the only thing you want. You also want to help them. You also want to share the practices that have helped you. There's so much that you want to do. But a lot of times the tightness and the feeling of the need to control comes from, I want to control how they see me. I want to control how they feel about their class. I want them to come back, obviously. And all of these things can be happening at once. But when we tease these apart and we notice this pattern, this tendency, then we have the opportunity to practice the letting go, practice the breathing space. Okay, what if I didn't need to control that? What if I shared what I know, how I understand it, and I allowed them to have their own experience with it, even if that experience means walking away and finding a teacher that's going to push me into handstand if that's what they really want. Totally. Yeah. It's a really important opportunity exactly for that. And that leads into this dichotomy that is so inherent in a lot of the ways that we study and practice yoga. Because earlier you talked about students need clear guidance. They do. They crave it. They need it. Otherwise, they wouldn't need to come to class. And the other side of that clear guidance is the space for them to experience and notice that experience. Yep. What that leads to in my book is silence. Yes, silence. We have to provide space. We have to be willing and comfortable enough, confident enough as teachers to stop talking just for a little bit and provide some silence and space for students to have an inner experience. And that's hard to do. That is hard to do. It's hard to be comfortable with silence, but it's also hard to be confident enough to not say so much, not continue to try to meet those expectations of your students that you mentioned earlier. And like meet everyone's expectations. Oh, I know that there are some people who expect this, some who expect this, some who expect this. So I'll just give it all so that everybody finds something in my class. 
Yeah. And teachers want to be perceived as knowledgeable and authoritative. We want to know that we have a role here. Sometimes when we don't say things, we're afraid students may perceive that we just don't know stuff to say. (laughs) When really it's that we know enough to stop saying stuff. And the more you know, the less you know. And the more you know, really, the looser you hold on to things, I think. Yeah. And what I think especially beginner teachers don't realize is that authority is already baked into their role. That's true. And you have as much authority as you need just by being named as the teacher. So you don't need to create any more authority. You need sensitivity and you need confidence, which is different from authority. The confidence is the willingness to let there be space. Agree. And the willingness to let there be dialogue. I think that often when a student asks a question, the answers are usually more questions. It's usually, tell me more about that. What happens if you do it this way instead? You know, I'm going to give you some options, but guess who's the expert on you? You are. I know that's hard. It'll come over time. And you say it out loud. I love naming that for students. You're in charge of your body. I know there haven't been a lot of spaces for us to get to know our bodies. Here we are. We got a long road ahead for all of us to become embodied and really become the experts on ourselves. And we've got guides that help us, consultants, let's say. A yoga teacher might be one of those. But I think explicitly handing the power back to students can be really helpful. And then it takes that pressure off a little bit. Says, yes, I'm here with you. I care about you. I'm holding space for you. But this is about you and you. (laughs) Yeah. So in a way, we need to reduce the amount of authority that students project onto us. Absolutely. It's not appropriate in modern times, in our kind of cultural setting at this point, to bring that old power dynamic in. It doesn't make sense. We need to bring empowerment in. We need to speak not from a place of power, but from a place of empowerment and think of ourselves as, I like the role of consultant. I must think of myself like that as a physical therapist as well. I'm going to see one slice of the pie. I'm going to offer what I see, and I'm not going to assume it's that I'm seeing everything, but I'm going to help where I can and help this person learn as much as they can about their own condition, et cetera, over time. So I, I really do like that concept of consultant. And circling back around to the cues, I see two categories of cues that we can use, and there's probably more, so fill in the gaps, but there are cues that invite a student to do something and cues that invite a student to notice. And my sense is that our classes are more heavily weighted on the doing cues, and those are the cues, again, that our students probably expect. And our classes would probably benefit from increasing the amount of the noticing cues which are invitational cues. And they're cues that definitely need to be followed by silence. I agree. I think noticing cues are absolutely just priceless. And when we can use more noticing cues, we limit the risk that we're unintentionally naming our students' experience for them. We might think we're using noticing cues, but they're so suggestive that they really don't provide the space and freedom for inquiry in our students. For example, notice the grounding or we're naming an experience for someone. Notice the freedom, notice the openness. I'm refining my language all the time to try to really limit that. 
And instead, notice what you feel in your body here. It's just really general, open-ended. There's not a suggestion that what you should be feeling is openness or what you should be feeling is groundedness. That's not the point. There's no wrong answer. There's no right answer. The question is, go inside and find out how you feel. That is task enough. That's not easy. Just stripping the language of all those suggestions, I think is really worthwhile practice. I know from my experience, it's not easy. I'm probably, I'm always going to be refining in that direction, but that's my goal. Yeah. And as we make suggestions like this, it might feel like a lot. It might feel like, oh, we're asking you to completely transform how you teach. And I hope it doesn't come off that way because really we have to understand that as yoga teachers, there's no end point where we're like the finished teacher. (laughs) We do our best today and then tomorrow we're going to do our best tomorrow. And over time, that's going to evolve and it's going to evolve in the direction of our intentions to do our best and to resource ourselves with the best information so that we can do that. Absolutely. I hope yoga teachers can hear this and not be pressured, not feel anxious about We don't need another thing to feel anxious about, but just know over time, we're moving in a direction of empowerment. Hopefully my teaching style has evolved just so radically over the years. It's really, it would be unrecognizable if we went back and met up with even my, my teaching self, even five years out of the gate. Same. I would say that if there's one quality that is most important to cultivate as a yoga teacher, it's self-acceptance and self-compassion. So Let that be the center of any other suggestions that we're making because yoga teachers already have so much compassion for other, so much acceptance of their students, so much love and caring. And then we turn around towards ourselves and just put so much pressure on ourselves and create so much anxiety about doing it right. So I just thought that was important to name that when you know this is your goal for how you want to teach, you can start walking in that direction. And more important than that is to accept yourself as you are now and recognize that you are good enough as a teacher now. How you are teaching now is good enough. That's the starting place. And how you're teaching now is undoubtedly changing people's lives. So it's powerful what you're already doing. And the other thing I like to bring in is as we evolve and we're moving in a direction, can we do it with some curiosity? Curiosity will bring some almost playfulness. This attitude of, huh, let's find out what kind of teacher I am next year. Ooh, what are we going to learn about this? It makes it fun. A little air of that playfulness to it, I think, is helpful. Exactly. Because we are never a finished product. And if I look back and I think about the progress that I've made as a teacher, honestly, that self-acceptance piece is the thing that I am most proud of. That's what I feel the best about because showing up with that supports me to create a space where students can create their own experience and where I let them be who they are now and let that be good enough too. Exactly. Exactly. It gives them the permission and space to have their own self-acceptance and to really hopefully understand that this whole yoga pursuit isn't about fixing them or making them different, but rather uncovering who they are to themselves so they can be that more truly and fully. And so I think you're right. It's critical to start from that 
standpoint as a teacher. I feel like I'm going on and on about this, but I just want to dispel the idea that you will ever get to a point where you're like, yeah, I'm a really great teacher and I'm done like (laughs) working on things. We hope we don't get there because that sounds really boring. (laughs) Right. That's what I love about the realms of study that I'm involved with. There's no end to what I can learn about this body and this whole human organism and how to talk about it, how to relate to others. It's endless and I enjoy learning about it. You talked about curiosity and that's a big piece of it. It's just like, we get to learn, we get to grow, we get to evolve in the direction of our values. Let's let that project be fun and an opportunity instead of something that's a chore or something that we're doing because we're not good enough yet. Exactly. Let there be some kindness in this. I know what it's like to not have that. It's really painful. It is. So take Mado's pep talk to heart. It is so transformative to turn that corner as a teacher, I think. And the cool thing is that you can focus on that and cultivate that at any stage of teaching. Because there are teachers who are brand new out of the gate, and this is just a gift they have. They just have that self-acceptance and it serves them. Yeah. That was not me. (laughs) No, no, not me either. But what I'm saying is it's available to you anytime. Libby, is there anything else that you want to share about cultivating body autonomy as a yoga teacher in your classes for your students, for yourself even? Oh, I just would emphasize that cultivating this idea of empowerment and body autonomy in your class is a revolutionary act in the world. And so let it give you a much bigger perspective on how important and powerful this is. Because I also think that one of yoga's goals is spitting out people who know how to stand in their power and in their values and take action towards reducing harm and dismantling oppression and all these things that I think really are in my worldview kind of embedded in some of the goals that yoga wants us to move towards as far as knowing ourselves and knowing who we are and what matters to us. So I do think that this idea of cultivating body autonomy in asana practice has really big implications and it has the potential to teach our students a lesson they need to know about going out and changing the world actually. So that's what I will, that's what I will say as my parting words. I love that. Thank you. Thank you as always for sharing your experience, your wisdom and your inspiration. And thank you for the same and for having me.